De la patrulla de Minos de California. Weather headlines for today, yes. Welcome to the Revenue Generator Podcast, an I Hear Everything production. In this podcast, you'll hear how industry leaders integrate sales, marketing, product, and customer success into a single business unit with a common goal of optimizing their revenue cycle. We'll unearth how innovators integrate data, technology, people, and processes to expedite demand generation and increase recurring revenue. Sit back, tune in, and get ready to meet a member of the Revenue Generation. Here's the host of the Revenue Generator podcast, the CMO of Lean Data, Doug Bell. Welcome to the Revenue Generator podcast, where we members of the Revenue Generation share solutions for how you can integrate your business to optimize revenue. I'm your host and the CMO of Lean Data, Doug Bell. And today we're going to discuss the integration of financial services and the revenue challenges of regulated industries. Joining us is Frederick Crosby, who is the Chief Revenue Officer at NEAM which is a leading embedded fintech company that provides banks, payment providers, and businesses of any size with access to global payment services. And today, Frederick and I are going to discuss what is embedded finance. Okay, here's my conversation with Frederick Cosby, the Chief Revenue Officer at Neom. Frederick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to have you. So give us an example of embedded finance that a typical consumer might recognize. Oh, I'll go for the big one that really caught everyone's attention. Apple Pay. That, that's not really Apple. Apple built the UI. Apple manages your accounts and connects it. Behind that's Goldman Sachs. They built everything in terms of how the money settles, how it's connected to your bank. They had the bank know-how. And that opened everyone's eye to the opportunity. Apple, as big as it is, didn't want to go into payments. It was going to let someone else do all the hard work. But believe me, they're making a good amount of money by every time you're scanning your phone at a register. So Apple is the originator or Apple's just the brand that everybody's probably familiar with when it comes to embedded finance? I think that started more awareness. It's been going on for a while. I would say even some form of checkouts and e-commerce sites could be called the initial embedded finance as long as they weren't branded. But the possibilities expanded. The number of opportunities to pay expanded. And then eyes opened up that anyone could have this as part of their service. When Apple came out and started doing that element, everyone started thinking about how they can improve their top line with it. So Apple brought it over the top. Yeah, it's a very well-referenced one, but you can see this happening in a number of places. There's a lot of people who are using embedded finance inside their systems, anything from a Facebook, to Uber, you know, having them have money move back and forth, but also send out to their customer base, that's embedded finance. You don't know that they're not in payments, but they're allowing someone else to do that. DoorDash, uh, you'll see it in a number of places. Money's moving more fluidly than ever has. And it, instead of interrupting the experience and having people go to their bank or to a PayPal account or to a Zelle account, it all just happens smoothly inside the experience now at a much higher rate. So you mentioned Apple is backed by Goldman Sachs. Are, are there instances, Frederick, where it's self-financed? In other words, there's not a Goldman Sachs behind the scenes. And I have to say, I'm a little surprised to hear Goldman Sachs is there with Apple, considering they're sitting on, I think it's $75 trillion in capital in their bank account, right? So it, it feels like if any company could probably float their own, 
that would be the company. But are there others that are actually self-financing? No, if they did, then it's just a payments company, right? Like PayPal. PayPal itself is a service. They move their own money. They have their own bank accounts. They're not embedded finance. They are financed. The embedded part is doing just that, allowing someone else to do all the financial work for you. And I think the reason people love this Apple example is because it shows you that we, even with all the cash in the world, sometimes it's just not worth the hassle of learning all the regulations and all the licensing and dealing with that whole new set of talent when someone else can just give you a suite of APIs and do it for you. So let's take a little step back here, Frederick, because I think that we've cast this in terms of how the consumer might perceive it. Talk to me about the advantages that businesses have when they use embedded finance. So there's a few things that a business can have. Let's talk about two different types, right? There is a business that is putting it on their platform. And this allows people to get a share of the payment revenue that they weren't getting before. Think again of the flow of funds coming into an e-commerce shop. Someone swipes a card. All that stuff is happening in terms of who gets what share. But it's really that person who provided that payment gateway is kind of calling the shots and providing all that. And often the merchant who did all the hard work and bringing the customer in, selling them the right stuff, supporting customer service, they don't get a share outside of the payment to them. All that magic of payments gets divvied up with all the other players involved. Or if another business is offering cards as part of their embedded work, embedded service, You know, usually it'd be someone else managing all that, you know, get a share. When you provide the financial service yourself, you're taking part of that revenue stream, the likes of a PayPal had, and getting a cut of it yourself. Frederick, I have to admit, I really thought you were going to say something different. Can I tell you what I thought you were going to say? Tell me. All right. So I thought you were going to say, the vendors sell more stuff. With embedded finance, they sell more stuff, right? In other words, you're increasing the likelihood that somebody who maybe had some hesitancy about their ability to pay for something, now feels like it's within reach or the ease of payment is there in front of them. Is that part of the value prop as well for embedded finance? Yes, but I'll tell you why it's not the bigger differentiator for me. People have been paying for stuff the whole time. Like maybe a couple of decades ago on e-commerce sites and e-service sites, he handled it something where, okay, I've done everything. Please mail me a check. I always joke about this. In 2004, when I started working at PayPal, the number one competitor on eBay was checks. People were still writing checks for e-commerce. It's unbelievable to think what's happened out there. So the integration of payments onto your experience, you know, that's been going on for a while. So that's not wholly it. But you get to control the experience more when it's embedded. Like you have more say in what you're going to be doing with it and how the user experiences and how the follow-up to any questions are. So yes, in that way, it can optimize your margins and your revenues and make it part of your holistic experience. And that's another reason people could do it because there is that branded element that they like. So instead of having a payment go off, someone like a payoneer, where you tell your merchant base, all right, go sign up for Payoneer and we'll just direct the money that way. And here's uh, Mr. Payoneer, Payoneer, here's my customer. Gosh, that kind of sucks. I have to give that away to someone else to own. I'd rather own the whole thing. I'd rather know how that person's getting their money, whether they're excited about how they're getting the money, set the prices for how they get their money. There is more control you could have on your ecosystem when you embed finance. So this is to the average non-e-commerce business person. This is probably a little surprising, but I'm going to share a stat with everybody. And the $75 trillion I mentioned before is, in fact, 
not what's in Google's bank account, guys. It's 76 trillion. Just kidding. But 75 trillion, I'm pulling this from a recent article I read about the size of the market over time, meaning the folks that matter think that it's going to be a $75 trillion industry in the next 10 years. That's huge. So how widely adopted is embedded finance? And Frederick, why aren't you calling me from your tropical island uh, with this <laughs> wide range of adoption, the 75 trillion market that's out there? You know, we'll see at the five-year anniversary of our first interview. That sure would be nice. So, you know, we are in the early days. So obviously the 75 trillion isn't in the bag yet. A lot of people still have disconnected experiences between commerce and payments. A lot of people just rely on old-fashioned gateways or wires. The B2B world, for example, has not even been started. We were laughing earlier about how eBay had PayPal and checks as their main form of payments. Businesses are still using wires and faxes and purchase orders as opposed to a smooth, unified flow where finance is controlled by the platform that's allowing the transaction to happen. All that's part of that $76 trillion. And we're just beginning in that phase. A lot of people are also trying to figure out whether their site is worthy of having its own account and its own wallet. There's various forms of wisdom where some people think people don't want to have another place to hold their money. And then you look around the world and see the likes of Alipay who started off as just kind of a, you know, one little other place to hold your money, becoming the powerhouse of how China moves money, because everything has to connect to that. And that's another example of something that just took off from just a random idea of let's add finance to our services to it being like the controlling linchpin of an entire country. We're at the early stage. What do you think the barriers are to B2B businesses adopting embedded finance? Well, there are complexities. One thing that we don't see on our side is the millions of different price points and SKUs sometimes that businesses have with each other. And that all has to be organized in such a way so the right price shows up at the right time. And people are doing that. They're recognizing the standardization and pricing is not only good for B2B payments, but it's also for cost efficiency and operational control. So there's that element. There's also some of the problems of the, gosh, is it really broke? Do I really need to fix it? Well, COVID helped nudge those people a little bit further along when they saw that more people were going to have to work more remotely, that this, this paperwork shuffle happening inside offices is not going to be continuing at the same pace. And also marketplaces are going more online where you know embedding commerce and having payments done was a lot easier than it had ever been to before. So that group is now shuffling faster toward it than was happening beforehand. So the, I would imagine that one of the challenges here ultimately for B2B businesses is the non-transactional nature of their business ultimately, right? B2B businesses, and I'm going to be overly simplifying things here for us, but B2B businesses typically are looking at ongoing revenue streams. So the idea of embedded finance quite often possibly is a challenge, right? If you're setting up an embedded finance situation where somebody's going to pay you over several years, again, this is the B2B scenario. It feels like that's a barrier to adoption. I'll tell you, as I'm thinking about this, the first thing that hits my marketing brain is the bottom of my funnel. And gee, wouldn't it be great if I could just have people complete a contract with a check of a box and actually complete the transaction with embedded finance? That is a dream possibly for later on. I'll meet you on that island when that happens, Frederick. It's, it's happening. It's happening. You're seeing it more and more. People are trying to standardize things. So it is just that simple. So maybe we'll get to that island sooner than later. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've really enjoyed the conversation today, Frederick. 
Okay, that wraps up this episode of the Revenue Generator Podcast. Thanks to Frederick Crosby, Chief Revenue Officer at Neum for joining us. In part two of this interview, which we'll publish tomorrow, Frederick and I are gonna discuss revenue challenges and regulated industries. If you can't wait until our next episode and would like to learn more about Frederick, you can find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes, or you can contact him on Twitter, where his handle is FJCrosbySF, or visit his company website at neum.com. Just one link in our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, head over to RevGenPod.com, where we have summaries of all of our episodes and contact information for our guests. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter, apply to be a speaker on the Revenue Generated Podcast, or you can even share your revenue generation questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. Our handle is RevGenPod on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or you can contact me directly where my handle is Market Advocate. If you haven't subscribed yet and want a daily stream of RevGen strategies in your podcast feed, we're gonna publish an episode every day during the work week. So hit that subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed in the next business day. Okay, that's all for now. But until next time, keep cranking because the revenue isn't gonna generate itself.